I'd like to speak about the application of the practice, the formal practice that we've been doing in our lives outside of the retreat. The most fundamental understanding, one that's absolutely essential to realize in our lives, is that there is absolutely no difference with respect to Dharma practice, whether we're sitting in the hall or in the dining room, or walking down the streets of Boston or New York. It's the same life process unfolding. And Dharma, Dharma practice is not a fragment, it's not a segment. It's not a part of our lives, but rather it's the whole of our lives. So there's nothing in our experience, which is outside of Dharma practice. So often, because the forms are quite different, we get the idea that our practice means sitting in a particular position or coming to retreat. And that's our spiritual practice, and the rest of our lives is something else. That's a very fragmented view of what Dharma is, and it creates a conflict in how we live. Then we've created the polarity of spiritual and worldly, retreat and out of retreat. And it's not true. to appreciate that our lives are of a piece. It's a unified unfolding of changing phenomena. In one chapter of Suzuki Roshi's book, he talks about nothing special. that is not getting attached to any form, any experience, any idea, any sensation as being particularly special. It's all part of the changing flow. There's another way of looking at it, and that is that everything is special. And both of those are really saying the same thing. Nothing special, everything special. Which means that every moment in our experience is an invitation to us to pay attention. It's an invitation to awaken. This awakening can happen, must happen, in the simplest, the most 
basic aspect of our experience, our feet touching the ground. Most of the day, our feet are touching the ground. And unless you're doing a headstand or taking a nap, mostly our feet are on the ground. That experience, that contact, that sensation is an invitation to awakening. Can we be there for it? Can we be paying attention? So the first, deepest understanding is that there's no separation in our lives of practice and not practice. Rather, we dance through different forms. For the past 12 days or two and a half months, we've danced through this form, the IMS form. As you leave here, you know, you'll start dancing through the Boston form, in New York, or California form, and relationships, and jobs, and... But it's the same process. It's the same, it's the same dharma, it's the same life unfolding. To appreciate that, to appreciate it deeply, allows us to make of our lives our Dharma practice, not just this. The question then is how to remember to do that. Because it's not so difficult. It's as simple as paying attention to the contact of our feet in the ground. That's how simple it is. But what's difficult is remembering to do it. As I'm sure you have all realized by now. Remembering. Remembering to come back. Remembering to pay attention. A few suggestions for remembering. Probably the most important in terms of reinforcing the remembering of being present is a daily sitting practice. There's no way to emphasize enough how important a daily disciplined practice is. Now, as Jack mentioned last night, and as you probably noticed, even just through the little bit of talking and interaction, that there will definitely be a slipping away of the precision of concentration and the stillness of mind and the clarity of mindfulness. But none of the efforts of the retreat are wasted. It's as if we reach a certain level of awareness and wakefulness. And even though that level may get covered somewhat, in the speed you know, of interpersonal relationships and work and busyness, still our practice, it's as, it's as if our practice has grooved out 
a channel of access to that level. We've opened up that level of awareness which we've come to. We've opened that up in our experience. And there's a channel, there's an access to that. The daily practice keeps that channel of access open. Doesn't mean that at times it's not going to get, you know, filled with sludge. <laughs> but the channel is there, and you know, with with not so much effort, you clean out the sludge again, and the mind drops to that to that place of attentiveness. The daily practice keeps the channel open. It's a very powerful reminder of what momentary awareness is. And it's very much in contrast to, for most of us, the whole rest of the day when we're busy and talking and working and moving real quickly. And just to counterbalance all of that energy, fast-moving energy, with sitting down and being still. The posture itself, I don't know whether you remember how it was from before, but you will certainly experience it again when you leave. You know, being busy all day, just the getting into posture of meditation is a relief. There's just that sense through the posture itself of centering, of calming, of quieting. To give a daily sitting practice, the discipline of it, a high priority in your life. And I know that after retreat, people are enthusiastic, and they're gung-ho, and they're going to practice, and it seems as if to sit a couple of hours a day will be nothing. You know, here you've been sitting 8, 10, 12, 20 hours a day. What's going to be a couple of hours? It's a lot. And you'll find that the first few days, the first week, the first couple of weeks, Everything's going fine. And you start sitting a little bit less, and a little bit less. And you start squeezing the sittings in between other things. And you start squeezing the sittings out. <laughs> <laughs> and it takes a lot, of, a lot of commitment, because as you may remember, Meditation is not particularly a cultural value. So there's not much support for it in the world. Now, aside from the support we give to one another as Sangha, there's not a lot of encouragement for being quiet and being still, doing a disciplined practice. So you have to give it a high priority. Really establish that commitment in your life and arrange your days around the sitting. How much to sit? 
as much as you can. One hour a day is survival. That's basic survival level. You'll see, you'll see. Less than that, and you definitely are on the path of insanity. (laughs) Real basic minimum, just to sit an hour a day and just let things clear out a little bit. Two hours a day is maintenance. It's a little better than survival, and you're kind of maintaining an equilibrium. More than two hours a day, three hours, four hours, and you're really deepening the channel quite significantly, deepening the level of attentiveness. And so it's up to you, really. You know, what level of commitment you want to make to the deepening of understanding, to the state, to the remembering to stay awake. One caution about the sitting practice, whether you sit an hour a day or two hours a day or longer, don't judge your practice. Because there'll be days when you sit down and it's wonderful. And just click into a nice clear space and it's quiet and calm and it feels productive. There'll be other times when you sit and your mind will be thinking the whole hour. You'll just be totally spun out in thoughts and feelings and bizarre energy. That's fine also. Don't judge it. Because the tendency will be if the concentration starts to weaken and you start to think more, oh, this isn't working anymore, there's not much point I'm just sitting and thinking the whole hour. There's not, not much reason to do it. So that weakens your commitment. Sometimes it's necessary just to discharge the day's impressions. You know, we accumulate so much in the day in terms of bodily tension, mental tensions, impressions. And a lot of the survival maintenance work of sitting practice is just discharging, releasing all that, so we're not accumulating, we're not tying the knots tighter. So even if you're sitting and the whole hour is spent thinking, it's not suggesting that you indulge the thinking, but sometimes it will happen. Fine, that's what had to happen, just that release. And you'll find that when you get up after that hour, if you don't overlay a judgment on it, that even from an hour of a lot of thought, you still get up feeling refreshed. Because you've you've let go of all that stuff. Working with the sitting practice, establishing as a discipline in one's life, it's essential. And it it brings a tremendous strength. It's really an anchor in our lives. Walking. Something that you will find very helpful if you 
of the time and the space to do it is to spend even a short time, even 10 minutes, doing some slow walking practice before you sit. So what happens is that the walking, even, even that short time, if you can just, and it can be a very small space, just back and forth, it's a way of getting collected again, recollecting the mind. And the walking is, I, I hope that you've come to an appreciation of how skillful and how deep a practice the walking is. And it's very tangible, it's very, it's very apparent. Spending even 10 minutes or so just doing the slow walking, you'll find that it's a tremendous aid in helping to concentrate and be mindful when you sit Instead of having to spend the first half of the sitting kind of reining the mind in, from those few minutes of walking, I think you'll often find that the mind is right there when you go to sit. So it's a very, it's a very skillful uh, addition to your daily practice. It doesn't have to be for long. It doesn't have to be long distances. The application of the walking and why it's been stressed so much is very um, important in our lives because as we're going about our business, find that we're moving a lot. We don't, most of us don't spend our days just sitting still walking down the street, walking from one room to another, walking from our house to a car, walking wherever. We spend a lot of time moving. Every moment of movement can be a moment of meditation. You're walking down the streets of some city. Generally, our minds get so caught up in our thoughts and plans and anticipations and reactions to the incredible amount of stimulus It's like this bombardment of input. And yet it would be so simple just to stay centered in one's body awareness, being aware of stepping, stepping. It doesn't mean that you have to creep down the streets lifting, moving, placing. (laughs) Although it wouldn't be any odder than a lot of other behavior (laughs) one sees. But it's not necessary. You can walk at a totally normal speed, but instead of the mind being carried away, just paying attention to the movement, to the touch, to the step. As we get into the habit of doing that, you find that many, many times through the day, we're remembering. Because we take a lot of steps in a day. To use each step, as a time to remember, to be present. Very helpful. Body awareness. It's the first foundation of mindfulness. And the Buddha emphasized it particularly for those people who are leading regular householder lives. Because it's such a 
simple way of establishing awareness, paying attention to the body. So sitting and walking, eating. Eating's a hard one. Because often we take times of eating to be very social, to be meeting with family and friends and talking and socializing. And that's fine. We don't have to kind of become hermit-like. It might be helpful if you take one time a day and just eat whether it's a snack or a piece of fruit or a cup of tea, whatever, and do that in silence and very slowly and carefully. That is to tap back into the depth of awareness that you've developed here with regard to eating, just as a reminder. It's like keeping the channel open. And at other times, not to make a big fuss of it, but to see if you can keep a general awareness so that the mind doesn't get totally lost or carried out of the moment in the social interaction and conversation. Being relaxed about it, trying to maintain some degree of settled backedness. Just, Just being there and eating and talking with a general cover of awareness. sitting, walking, eating. There's one other trick which will be sort of like a a six-month course to full awareness when you leave here. It's the next six months. And that is every week pick one small activity that you do every day with the resolve that for that week you're you're going to concentrate on doing it very mindfully. Like brushing your teeth, or opening doors, or standing up, or sitting down. One activity a week, and for that week you pay careful attention for those few minutes of doing that activity. The first week, you do brushing your teeth. And the second week, you do opening doors. And the third week, you do standing up. And the fourth week, you do sitting down. And the fifth week, something else. At the end of six months, you'll be quite mindful. Now, it's just slowly adding all of the activities that we do, one by one, getting into the habit of paying attention, of being present. It so much cuts through the confusion in our lives. we've, We've worked very much with the sense of clarity and freedom which comes just from the simplicity of the moment. You know, when the sensation of pressure, of heat, of contact, of movement, When we're just with what's happening, there's no problem. 
No self, no problem. Big self, big problem. (laughs) And when we can drop back into the experience of each moment, in the simplest and most basic way, just brushing the teeth, very simple. In that, we're not lost in future, we're not lost in past. No anxiety, no tension, just the simplicity of the moment. You see, as we live our lives more and more in that way, as Jack mentioned last night, Munindra's, Munindra's mantra, simple and easy. Our lives become very simple and easy because we're living in the moment. We're simply paying attention to what's going on right now. In that, there's less and less confusion. That's one dimension of carrying the practice outside. Sitting, of walking, of eating, and slowly you know, taking small things and beginning to add, to add them to our um, our lives, quality attention to those experiences. There are other dimensions of practice, and they're particularly helpful to be aware of and pay attention to. One of them. Agasara mentioned in his talk the other night, understanding the the value of the precepts. The precepts have to do with interpersonal relationships, has to do with our relationships with other people, with the environment, and so it's a very important uh, level or dimension of our practice. And the fundamental basis of the precept is non-harming. Non-harming of ourselves, non-harming of other beings. And that could be the reference point for all your actions. If there's any question in your mind about whether a particular action is moral or not, is in harmony or not, refer it back to that place of inquiry, of investigation. Is this action causing harm? Causing harm to myself, causing harm to others. Working with the precepts, not in a moralistic way, but rather in a way of exploration. You know, our lives are it's as if this life energy is a medium for creativity. Just as a painter uses the medium of color and a sculptor, you know, the medium of certain materials. Actually, what we are, we are life artists. And to understand that this energy is, is incredibly malleable, 
It's a wonderful medium. It's much more, much more alive <laughs> than any other. <laughs> but we forget that. Somehow we just kind of we go through our lives half awake, half asleep, you know, and we forget the creativity that's possible. We can actually create our lives. This night upstairs, uh, we were talking a little bit and just reflecting about the qualities of the Buddha and commenting among ourselves how it was almost impossible to imagine you know, what he must have been like. And appreciating that possibility or potential of perfection. I mean, imagine you know, creating a masterpiece of one's life. There's tremendous, tremendous completion and, and joy even in the contemplation of that. We can do that. That's the nature of mind, that it's transformable. It is transforming in every moment, and we can either take a conscious delight in the creation of our lives, or we just get carried along by old habit patterns and conditioning. Taking responsibility for our lives, and to begin to fashion fashioning it through the sitting practice, through paying attention to what we do, through the precepts that is non-harming, through the development of metta, of loving kindness and compassion. It's a quality that can be developed, and not developed necessarily in any one particular way. Because I know that sometimes... You know, when we do the metta meditation, John will be leading it this morning after the talk. Sometimes we do the metta meditation and it's like the mind is just filled with thoughts of anger and hatred and violence. And, and so then we start thinking, well, I'm just not a loving person. And not true. It's just we each express and develop and cultivate love in our own particular way. Find out, really explore and investigate the way that each of you can develop this quality because it's it's a quality of mind that's wonderfully connecting and opening and spacious. As an experiment, when you leave here, and you're walking down a street or sitting on a bus, just in some situation where normally you feel quite isolated and separated from everybody else around you, people you don't know, see what happens as an experiment if as you're walking down the street or sitting on the bus, you just start sending metta to everybody around. May everyone on this street be happy. May everyone on this bus be peaceful. And it doesn't mean that you get up in front of the bus and, you know, <laughs> may you all be happy, may you all be peaceful. 
it can be done very invisibly <laughs> and just from your heart sending out those thoughts and feelings you will see I think that there is an immediate change in your relationship to everybody on that bus and everybody on that street instead of walking down the street feeling isolated feeling alone feeling disconnected just by projecting that loving energy the connections get established try it you'll see for yourself you know the power of actually taking the time to cultivate that loving thought and feeling working with your daily discipline practice working with precepts and non-harming really understanding that working with the development of metta all of these are ways of fashioning our lives of creating our lives one big area of Dharma practice which is often overlooked and it's just key key element in our lives has to do with communication and understanding right speech we spend a lot of time and a lot of energy talking mostly we don't pay attention to the quality of that energy it's become so automatic that we just talk, you know, and respond. And but there's an enormous, an enormous energy exchange that's happening. And we spend a lot of every day in that medium of speech, of words, of language. A big part of practice is to begin paying attention to speech to communication becomes a very fruitful area because most interpersonal conflicts come from some breakdown in communication people missing one another instead of connecting and one of the keys to good communication is taking the time to listen to really listen in silence now in these next few days here you will have really a good opportunity to pay attention to how you communicate when somebody else is talking are you simply there listening in silence receiving or is the mind waiting for the next pause to jump in with something you know, and that makes communication hard because then we're not really there for the other person we don't understand what they're saying because our minds are so engaged in what we want to say times of silence in communication are very important that is silence within one's own mind 
so that we can receive. Even periods of silence between people just being there and feeling where another person is at, where they're coming from. Especially challenging will be when you go home and you're with your families again. You know, parents or children who may not be so connected with what this is all about. And you're going to go home and they're going to ask you how it was. I don't know, what can you say? (laughs) (laughs) One thing is to be sensitive to what they really are asking. You know, well, how was it? And they might be like saying hello. You know, and they're not interested at all. If you then proceed to give them a four-hour rap about, you know, you're sitting in walkings, it's not appropriate. Sometimes people will ask and they will be interested. Then there's a new challenge. What kind of language will they be able to hear? You know, there's so many, so many um, dimensions to communication. Not only is it being sensitive to another person's interest or presence, but also sensitivity to the language that's appropriate. Almost guaranteed, if you go back to wherever you're going and you start talking about no self and there's nobody home (laughs) and it's all suffering and... (laughs) It's not going to make it. You have to be real sensitive. You know, use whatever vocabulary seems appropriate because the Dharma is not limited to any one particular vocabulary. You could express the Dharma through any other religious vocabulary. You could discuss the Dharma through a psychological vocabulary, through a scientific vocabulary. It doesn't matter. We don't want to be attached to a particular set of concepts. Rather, to be grounded in our experience of Dharma and then to communicate it in whatever way is appropriate. Skillful means. That was one of the perfections of the Buddha. Perfection of skillful means. What works? In order to hear what works, we have to really be listening. We have to be listening and silent and sensitive to other people not laying our trips. And sometimes verbal communication is not where it's at at all. You may, you know, go back and find that sitting in front of the TV with a beer with your parents is what works, is what just establishes some openness and trust and don't have models. Because if you want them to be anybody, parents, children, lovers, friends, If you want them to be how you want them to be, 
It's not helpful. Because everybody is the way they are. And in order to establish trust, we have to be accepting of them. Communication is very important. And so, it really is worth paying close attention. This is the disciplined daily practice, this understanding the power of non-harming, the fearlessness that comes from that. Developing metta and loving feeling, paying attention in careful way to communication. The last thing I wanted to talk about this morning, in some ways, is the least appreciated part of our lives. Something that happens all the time and which we undervalue in terms of our practice and understanding. And that is working and investigating and exploring all the times of difficulties in our lives. When we're having difficulty, when we're up against an edge, when we're suffering, fantastic. Because when we're suffering, in whatever way, whether it's because of what's happening to us internally or with work or with other people, that means that we have been brought right up to the edge of what we're willing to accept. We're comfortable and comfortable and comfortable and comfortable, and then we get out here and something's going on and we're not comfortable. Comfortable in the sense of open to, not necessarily pleasant, open to. And all of a sudden the mind clutches. It gets tense, it gets in conflict, it gets into a struggle. Why? Because something is going on that we're not open to. We're, We're either attached to it being a certain way or fearful of it being a certain way. We're right at our edge. Beautiful. When people come to retreats to get out to their edge, the world is providing those opportunities all the time. (laughs) But usually we don't take advantage of it, we don't investigate, we don't see actually what's going on. Either guilt or blame or self-pity, whatever. And we don't see how fruitful a time that is. At that edge, at that boundary, at that place of conflict, investigate, see exactly what it is. Where is that conflict coming from? What's the attachment? What's the fear? When we're suffering, it's as if a big neon sign is going off, blinking on and off, attachment, attachment, attachment. I mean, what more can we ask for? It's the Buddha right there, giving us this wonderful message. Four noble truths can be deeply experienced right in that moment. 
It's not that you have to practice for 20 years and when your mind gets quiet, you know, then the great illumination will happen. It's right at those moments when we're right at the edge, you know, and in this place of knots or conflict, if we can look at it, we can see the suffering, we can see the cause of suffering, we can see the end of suffering, we can see the way to the end of suffering. It's all there in that moment. But it means being alive to it rather than wallowing in some kind of you know, blame or self-pity. It takes that real sense of looking, of exploring. Very valuable times. And I'm not suggesting that it's either easy or pleasant. Because it'll probably be difficult and unpleasant. But very juicy. There's a real good time of practice. Very good time. Working with all these things, really integrating every part of our lives into our understanding of what Dharma practice is. That's our challenge. Do you have any questions? Okay, the question was, for example, when you find yourself suffering because of loneliness, and the mind is spun out with it, and that's a good example of a whole range of states. Some people suffer from loneliness, some from sadness, from some from unworthiness, some from whatever. Right. I guess it's one last reminder right, of something that has been said often. The problems in our lives, in our practice, never have to do with what it is that's going on. But they have to do with how we're relating to what's going on. Okay, once more. The problems in our lives (laughs) never have to do with what's going on. They have to do with how we're relating to what's going on. So, where do we look? If there's a certain experience happening, and we're suffering, and we're in conflict, do we look to the thing itself, or do we look first to how we're relating to it? Loneliness. Do we relate to loneliness with aversion, with fear, with resistance, with identification. All of those ways of relating to loneliness cause the conflict. Can we relate to that experience? It's a feeling, loneliness. It's a feeling like sadness, like love, like happiness, like anger. It's a feeling that comes has certain qualities, goes away. Can we open to it? Can we relate openly to it 
lovingly rather than with fear or resistance. And what you'll find, I think, is that what locks certain difficult situations into our experience is our resistance to them. Now, what causes the, so much fear of loneliness? The idea that it's going to last forever. I'm going to be lonely the rest of my life. That's a real fear for people, and it's why loneliness has such a strong charge to it. But what keeps that locked in, what keeps the loneliness as a feeling, as an emotion, locked into our experience is exactly our resistance, our pushing against it. We're feeding it. With our resistance, we feed. And so it stays and it gets stronger. And the beauty of the Dharma, the present moment, Again, you know, just when you're right with this sensation, right, hardness, pressure, is there any loneliness? There's no loneliness right in the moment. How much of loneliness is tied up with future projection? When we're not in the moment, but we're projecting, right? into the next five minutes, the next hour, the next day, I'm going to be alone. So we create this little picture in our mind. We create a lonely picture. Just like that Zen monk created a frightening picture of a tiger. We look at the picture we paint and get lonely. In one way, it's amusing, but it's also not amusing, since we do it all the time with so many different states, and it's important. And it's real important to see that it's all workable. The loneliness is workable. That is opening to the feeling rather than resisting it, and bringing the mind back to the moment rather than projecting out of the moment and creating, painting the scenario. Is that helpful at all? It, it's very important, and for each of us, I mean, we, we have different emotions that are very important and charged to see that it's all part of the practice, working with them. Not necessarily. Maybe, maybe there's just, you're experiencing it just on the energy level. There's an energy quality which comes and you're with it and it changes. There's no problem. When there's what? Deer hunters, 
Why couldn't you accept the disliking? Okay. <laughs> what does accepting mean? It means getting there and paying attention. Of course, you do have the choice. Right, of whether, once you're aware that the process is happening, the choice is there. Okay, can I open to this? Am I going to stay closed? To the degree that you realize staying closed to something right, is suffering. It's like holding on to a hot coal. Now, how long do you hold on to it? You hold on to it until you realize that it's burning. And sometimes it actually has to burn through until we realize that it's burning. <laughs> We're calloused. Both. If if you could catch it right with respect to the object and get there for that, there wouldn't be disliking. If the disliking comes, though, then you become mindful of the disliking. Now, at whatever point in the chain you can get there for it, then you can work your way back. Yeah, but you said you got to love all that stuff. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> I'll tell you something. If you think that dining room is fast, <laughs> you just wait. <laughs> Right. You will. <laughs> and so there are two <laughs> there are two things to do about it. One is to realize that you will and to love that too. Right? Because it's gonna happen and it's part of all of us. You know. And not to add to that the judgmental, critical, condemning mind, because that's just tying another knot on top of all that. Right? Really to see that, okay, we're going to get carried away, and we're going to get lost, and get greedy, and get forgetful, and can we get there for that, and be open to that. In addition, when you begin to get sensitive to the uh, signals in other words, when you're in a situation and you feel like things are getting faster and faster and you're really losing it, losing some sense of groundedness, instead of waiting until you're drowning in it, 
You know, just when you see that it's happening, let that be a signal to you just to withdraw a little bit, retreat. That's what a retreat is. Just like you retreated here, you know, from all of that. And the retreat can be a five minutes sitting down and just going back to the breath. You know, just becoming silent again, getting centered. And again, making a foray out. And it takes, it takes practice. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it doesn't have to be the bathroom. It could just, you know. It could just be sitting quietly. Generally, if you're sitting with your eyes closed any place, people won't bother you. They'll think you're sleeping. You know. It's really a, it's a acceptable social signal. <laughs> and it takes doing it, you know, it takes really just coming back. Okay. Mm. One technique that I've worked with that I found very, very helpful is whenever, or as, as much as I can, when I have the thought to give something, I do it. So like when that impulse comes, I try to act on it. And after a while, it becomes more and more of a, a spontaneous uh, gesture. Now because through the day we have, you know, we have good thoughts, but often we just, well, I won't bother, or, you know, we forget it. Um, and in that sense, it's really practicing it. Right? The thought comes, we practice doing it. There was one addendum to something Agasara said in his talk the other night. He said, where this, this great monk had condensed you know, the whole of the Dharma into know what you're doing. Uh, that's, it seems so clear, just to know what we're doing. But there's another half to it, and that is to do what we know. Because we have a lot of wisdom, you know, all of us. We, we really have tapped into a place of deep understanding. And it's honoring that in ourselves. And to do, to manifest, to act what we know. And this is in this regard. And so a thought of generosity comes to do what we know. And in that way, the manifestation comes into balance with our understanding. They become integrated, they become one. It can be helpful. Different kinds of reflections or contemplations, and people are drawn to different ones. As I mentioned, we were just 
reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha, it created tremendous joy in the mind. And just contemplating those qualities of perfection of mind. Uh, and that's one of the traditional reflections. Reflections on the 32 parts of the body. You know, and just seeing what that's about. Many, I mean, there are, there are countless kinds of Dharma reflections, reflecting about the Four Noble Truths. Reflecting about one's own good qualities. Very helpful. You know, because so often our minds, as you've seen, get so caught in self-judgment and self-condemning and self-hatred. And that's just a tape in the mind. You know, somebody, when you were three years old, told you how bad you are and reinforced it. And so that's the tape that plays. As a way of deconditioning that, to reflect upon the good things that we've done. The acts of non-harming, the acts of generosity, the acts of practice, creates a lot of joy and rapture in the mind. And it makes concentration easy when we, when we feel good about ourselves. So that's a, that's a really helpful one. Right. I think that you should find uh, each of us has a different um, time interval that we can maintain the resolution for. In other words, come in, I'm not going to move for this hour. Good. Maybe, maybe you feel comfortable with that kind of resolution. There's a kind of confidence that you can do that. Maybe not. Maybe it's half an hour. Right. Make the resolution, okay, for these ten steps, I'm going to be totally attentive. Maybe that's too much. Maybe five steps. Right. Maybe one step. For the rest of this year, I'm going to get up at 4 a.m. <laughs> you know, I, may, I, I certainly honor people who have that ability to make that resolution and to do it. See what interval is workable for you. If it's too long, it's like Ajahn Chah's story of going out into the forest and trying to lift a stone that's too heavy for you. What happens? You hurt yourself. You can lift a stone that's not too heavy for you. And you lift those, and you lift those, and then you get stronger. So then you can lift heavier stones. Right? So work, resolutions are important, and discipline's important. In, not, in a, not in a heavy way, kind of in a, in a way that gives strength and gives confidence in a real energetic way. Very helpful. Strengthening. But you have to recognize your limits. And just to work right at that edge. Okay, just two more questions. Yeah, I'm curious what 
you would say about the role of television? I don't mean that <laughs> frivolously, because um, it's a pretty big factor in most people's lives, and if it's not in my life, it's in the people I know's lives, in terms of um, what you might see as value, or how to deal with it, or how to not be, how to be aversive to it, or whatever. Or just how you find it in your life. <coughs> I watch it so rarely mm. that I don't have much relationship to it. I'm, I mean, I'm <laughs> having been all those years in India and now watching it so rarely. I'm still excited when I see color. <laughs> it still is new thing to me. <laughs> You know, in my practice, I spend so many hours reliving Father Knows Best. <laughs> because as a kid, I watched a lot of TV, and it was all in there. And what was so amazing was I saw that how many of my responses to things were simply lifted from all these dumb programs. You know, that's, that's the process of conditioning. Whether it's from TV or school or parents, I would exercise as best you can discriminating wisdom. In real, I mean, it's a powerful medium, and I've had, I've seen some things which have been incredibly opening and you know, really profound. But to exercise some wisdom is, you know, is just, is worth watching because it's so. I mean. It's certainly mesmerizing. You know, just the few, the occasions that I do watch it, it's just so easy to kind of plunk down in a chair and be in this blank. Yeah, it is. The question was that as we become more aware and open, we really become sensitive to energies you know, outside of ourselves. And that outside, we often find ourselves in places or situations of a lot of aggression coming towards us and how to relate to that. The tendency being just to close and to protect ourselves. There's a, there's a, it's an important question, how to work with that energy. What we learn in the practice is directly applicable to those situations. That is, how have you learned to relate to aggression in your own mind? Do you close to it? Do you react to it? 
do you get aggressive back, right, in terms of condemning or judging or disliking or aversion? Or is it possible to be open to the energy, that is, open to the feeling of it, without getting caught in it and without condemning it? In some of the martial arts, there's a very graphic, physical expression of how to work with that kind of energy. You know, this this powerful energy comes, and just, you move with it. It's It's not that you have to stand there and kind of let it hit you and either then close or fight back. You have to dance with it. Dance with it in a balanced way. It takes a lot of practice. It's not so easy. But the more okay you are with those qualities in yourself, the more you get to understand how to relate openly to powerful energy within, it's much easier to stay balanced then. When it comes, okay. It's possible. You could also play fighting back. If that's what is the skillful response. It's not so much in what you do, but rather the quality of mind that you do it with. And so it's not to look for any one model of how you should be in a situation. You know, it's like that story with Sharon in India and you know, Manindra telling you you should have taken your umbrella and hit that man over the head. Sometimes that's what's necessary. You have to really take forceful action. Sometimes it's just stepping aside. Sometimes it's engaging in other ways. It will be a tremendous... Uh, straitjacket if you try to plan your life. Okay, what will I do in this situation? What will I do in that one? Impossible. You really have to trust the intuitive response, being watchful for how you're relating to what you're doing. So there's not any one set of responses. But can you respond in whatever way is appropriate with that quality of balance? And it takes practice. And that's what our practice is. So, I think we'll close with uh, John leading some metta. This retreat (coughs) has been wonderful. Thank you.